Hi there. My name is Mireya Perez, and I aspire to create a platform where language service providers can tell their stories and where listeners can find inspiration and creativity. This podcast is dedicated to you, the language professional that desires to listen to the journeys of others in order to create their own path and personal branding. Here, I'll feature an array of guests from all fields of interpretation, as well as translation, willing to share their stories with you. Join me as we embark on professional and personal development by telling our stories. This is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning back in to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is episode number 13. And in today's episode, we'll be talking to Rory Burton, an ASL interpreter. We'll get an opportunity to scratch the surface of what it's like to be a black woman ASL interpreter. Rory Burton is a community-raised interpreter who hails from Chicago, where she began learning American Sign Language at an early age. After graduating college with her degree in deaf education, she taught in school districts around the country for 10 years before beginning what she assumed would be a temporary foray into a career as a full-time ASL interpreter. 12 years and five cities later, Rory has worked as an interpreter in a variety of settings, including video relay service, vacation cruises, Hollywood sets, operating rooms, and theme parks, among others. Her current project involves coordinating a group of Black, Indigenous, and Latinx protesters who are providing pro bono ASL access to rallies and protests in support of the Black Lives Matter liberation movement. So, without further ado, here's Rory Burton. Rory, it's a privilege to have you as a guest on the show today. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm eager to find out more about you. So tell us, tell us your story. Who is Rory Burton? Hi, I am Rory Burton, and this is my story. I grew up in Chicago um, in the 80s and the 90s. I was a very quiet child, extremely shy, extremely introverted. Some of my fondest memories of growing up would be that, fortunately, both of my parents were bookworms. My father had a ton of books. He was always reading something when time permitted. My mother was always reading, and I had such a, an appetite for reading as a child. I remember my mom would take me on Saturdays to the local library um, up the street from where I lived, and at the time, I had like a, a junior library card, and I remember the maximum number of books that you could take out with the junior, the child library card, I think was like 10 books. And I would always come back with 15, 20 books. And my mom would have to take my books and put some of them on my card. And she'd have to put some on her library card. And we'd have like, you know, grocery store bags full of books that I would take home on a Saturday. And I go to my room with my bag of books and by Saturday night, 
if I got in 20, 25 books, I was halfway done with all of my books. So I end up with 10 books left out of 25 books I had just gotten that morning. I would have maybe 10 books left. And my mother would say, here, give me your bag of books. I'm going to ration them out to you <laughs> because you're just going through these books so fast. You're going to want to go back to the library tomorrow, tomorrow, Sunday. The library is going to be closed. You're going to be upset. Like, no, I'll give you the books one by one to read. You go watch TV or something. And that was just me as a child. I read, I remember just being very young and having um, a high reading comprehension and vocabulary scores on those standardized tests. I even ended up skipping a year in elementary school, in grammar school, because my math was on par, but my reading ability was so advanced that the teachers just couldn't give me enough work. Everything was just so easy, came so easily to me. And so I've always loved words. I've always loved languages. I remember, um, fortunately, we, me and my brothers, we all went to private, a private school in Chicago. And we started Spanish classes, I believe I was in third grade. And I was so head over heels with learning another language. I can, I can remember being a little kid and watching TV. And you know how on the commercials it'll say, say habla espanol? I thought to myself, as like maybe five years old, say, okay, that can be W-E, those two letters, habla, S-P-E-A-K. So each, I thought there was a one-to-one -one correspondence with the letters. We speak Spanish. That's how, you know, that's how the Spanish language works as it's compared to English. Oh, this is great. I thought I had figured it out. Clearly that wasn't the case. <laughs> but in my head, I just wanted to know languages. And I really wish I had been able to, gone, to have gone to an immersion school. I ended up going to high school, a Catholic high school, all girls. And I met another girl there, a black girl who had gone to an immersion school in grammar school. And she picked up Russian. That was the language of her choice. So she was this 13 year old black girl from, you know, the hood in Chicago who spoke Russian beautifully, fluently. She was going to grow up and become a Russian interpreter. And I just remember being so inspired by that. Wow. She can speak a whole nother language that allows her to interact with an entirely different group of people. And I was amazed by that. So I've always loved languages. I can remember maybe being, or, you know, maybe around the same time, 12, 13 years old. And I was thinking about the word parasol in English, P-A-R-A-S-O-L. And then I had learned in Spanish that umbrella is paraguas. And I'm like, wait, para, I, like it just went, like it made so much sense for water, for sun. Paraguas, parasol, like it just, I just loved language. And I still, to this very day, I'm obsessed with words and breaking them down and the etymology and where did this word come from? It's a loan word. I just love it. I'm obsessed with it. And what I love is that even at such a young age, you had this appreciation for languages. And I, I suspect that that may have been derived from your love for reading and therefore your love for words and connecting these words into creating a story. But that at such a young age, you already knew that language would open up the world to meeting different people and knowing different cultures. I think that in itself is beautiful. 
Rory, let's go back a little bit to your life in Chicago. Aside from visiting the library with your mother, what was another important memory that you had about Chicago that still to this day resonates with you? I grew up in a very middle-class family, a nice house in a nice community that was surrounded by some socioeconomic depression. Um, Chicago's an extremely segregated city. So I grew up in a Black community. Everybody around me was Black. The white communities were over there. The Puerto Rican community is over there. There's Chinatown over here. So it was just very segregated. But I remember going to church and being always surrounded just by people who were educated and, and, you know, everybody didn't necessarily have a PhD or any degree at all, but just having that education and that always being something that was always so important wherever I was. People at church would always ask me, you know, how school, I know you're, you know, you always got your head in a book. And that was me. Everywhere I went, I had books with me and people always knew. And that was my, that was my trademark. Some people, you know, are gifted in sports. Some people are, you know, physically gifted and they're just gorgeous to look at. I was always just in a book. And that is, if anything, growing up, that was it. And my grades were always, I can remember one time I got straight B's in high school and I had, these were honors classes. So those B's equaled out to be a 4.0 GPA, but I was distraught. I cried. I called my mother at work. What's going on? Am I not smart anymore? Forgetting B's. I just always had the overachiever type of perfectionistic type of, you know, this is the only way that I'm going to make something of myself is to, to be educated, to be smart, to do better, and to prove to people that, yeah, Black kids can be smart too. And I just, that was just always something that was in me that my parents taught me that you have to as a Black person, you have to be smarter than, faster than, better than, earlier than to be able to even get your foot in the door. So that was something that was very intrinsic. And, you know, I can remember being a little girl and writing in my notebook. I I love making lists. And I can remember making lists as a little girl, you know, this is what I'm going to do because I'm going to go to Stanford University was my dream school as a child. And, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to be a teacher and just a list of what I wanted to do in the future. I'm, I'm kind of future oriented in that way. And just those type of memories, you know, they still inform who I am today and they still inform me even as I've become an interpreter which was not my intended career, but it's still who I am. So when and how does ASL enter your life? Well, my journey in learning ASL began when I was seven. Well, no, actually, let's take it back. My journey beginning learning ASL was probably began when I was about four or five. I'm even more intrigued now. Tell us more. Okay. <laughs> my mother, for whatever reason, I don't, I, I will never know. Um, was fascinated with American Sign Language. As early as I can remember, she would sit down and watch this show on a PBS channel in Chicago, which is WTTW Channel 11. There was a show called Signing with Cindy, and it would come on with John Denver singing Sunshine on My Shoulder. And as the opening credits ran, this woman, Cindy, would be on the beach 
with her long dark hair signing this song. And my mom would sit down and watch it. And me being the quiet, introverted, shy child that I was, I clung to my mother. I would sit down and watch with her. And we would just sit there and be fascinated. And I was like, wow. So those things, the movements with her hands indicates the concept of what this song is. That's awesome. Who, who knew? As a, you know, as a four-year-old child, I'm thinking to myself, wow, who made this up? This is pretty cool. And my mother was fascinated with it. So all along my life, my childhood, my mom uh, influenced that. There were TV shows. There was a TV show with Marley Matlin, the um, famous deaf actress, called Reasonable Doubt. She played an attorney, I believe, and she's deaf. So she's using sign language uh, on the TV show. We watched that. There were certain TV commercials. I remember a commercial saying, there's two people sitting um, one deaf, one hearing, and the deaf woman is signing. When I, I use my hands to speak to the world, so when I have a wart, I can't hide it. That was the that was the that was the line, and I remember watching that commercial. It was for wart remover, but she was signing, and I was just fascinated with, oh my god, I have to catch this commercial every single time so I can watch her sign, so I can copy it, so I can learn how to to say that same concept, should ever I have a wart on my hands and I want to tell the world about it. You know, at that time we didn't have, you know, DVRs or even VCRs to be able to record and play back. I just would have to watch TV and catch it. My mom, my mom would yell to me from upstairs in the bedroom, Rory, your commercial is on. And I would run up the stairs to catch whatever I could catch um, for this wart remover commercial. And she ended up taking a class. I was seven. I couldn't attend. She took a class at a nearby church, an ASL class. She would come home and teach me mom, dad, ABC, one, two, three, basics um, at seven years old. And we would kind of practice back and forth as she took this, I think, eight-week course. But after the fact, we didn't know anyone who was deaf, so it never went anywhere at that point. Finally, when I was 12 or 13, I was in church and this is the same church I've been going to forever and, you know, same, same routine. But this particular Sunday I looked up and there was a little girl signing with her mom. And I remember was very shy, very introverted. So I didn't take it upon myself to go over and be like, Hey, I want to learn ASL. I told my mom said, mom, look, they're using sign language. And she's like, well, let's go over and talk to them. I was terrified. She said, okay, I'll do it. So she went over and talked to the woman and the little girl and brought them over to me. I'm 13 years old, shy, like freaking out. And the woman, Valerie, she said, oh yeah, you know, my name is Valerie. This is my daughter, Ashley. And yeah, you want to learn sign language? Sure, we can teach you sign language. And oh my God, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I knew it in that moment that that was going to be the best thing that ever happened to me. I just knew it. Because I was, I'm like, it's been years that I've been trying to really learn this language. And now here I've got an actual user of the language. This is going to be great. So she commenced from that moment on until I went away to college. Every church service, we were avid churchgoers. We were, as, as Black churchgoers in Chicago, we were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday afternoon. I mean, we were in church sometimes every day in a week. So I would see her not just once a week for 30 minutes at a church service. I spent a significant amount of my um, high school years sitting with this woman and her daughter and learning ASL in church 
going over their home after church service and hanging out and started to babysit this little girl who was deaf and her friends would come over. I would help them with homework. And she, the mom started doing my hair, doing my mom's hair. So we spent a crazy amount of time over her house. And so that's how I actually learned ASL. I've never taken an ASL class. I, all of my ASL learning has been through people learning from actual users of the language. So that has been so highly beneficial to me um, in lieu of taking a class taught by someone in an artificial environment. Um, in college, because my major was deaf education, we, there were two classes that required of sign language and it, neither one of them were ASL. They were signed English, which is not a language. It's more word for word English on the hands. American Sign Language is an actual different disparate language, discrete language with its own structure and own grammar and pragmatics and all of that. It's completely separate linguistically. So um, and I never took those classes in college because I came to college already signing. Those classes were for people who wanted to be teachers of the deaf and didn't know any sign language. I already signed. I lived on the floor um, in my dorm in college. I lived on the floor that was designated for students who were deaf and hard of hearing or people whose majors were associated um, with deafness and perhaps wanted to learn or practice they, their ASL. So I lived on the dorm with deaf people during college. And, and so I've never taken a class ever. That's amazing, Rory. And so you go into college as a, is it safe? to say a near native speaker in ASL or? No, I would say near, I would never claim that. I would say near native sign skills. Thank you. Near native signing skills. See, I told you I was going to learn a lot today. <laughs> and so you go into college with near native signing skills. What was your focus then in ASL? Was it ASL interpreting or education? Or what was it? I, ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to be a teacher. And so when I met Ashley, the little girl who was deaf, I said, oh, here we go. That's exactly when I, what I want to do. So when I was 12, 13, I knew I wanted to be a teacher of the deaf. So I went to college. My major was deaf education. I finished my deaf education career. I knew that's what I wanted, or my college career, and immediately began teaching deaf and hard of hearing students and in and around the Chicagoland area, where I still lived at the time. And that's all I ever wanted to do at that point. When does the pivot occur into the world of sign language interpreting? As someone who has a ton of deaf and hard of hearing friends, beginning in high school and college, you just naturally, as the hearing person in the group, interpret whatever needs to be interpreted. If you're going to a store or if you're at a restaurant or if you're out somewhere and there's an announcement or there's something on the radio or there's something on the TV, you just naturally interpret that if the situation arises, if you're asked to or if there's a just natural need to. And so I always kind of interpreted um, part of my job as a teacher of the deaf initially was interpreting if there was, for example, an all school assembly at that time in the school districts where I taught, there were no designated interpreters for that. That was the responsibility of the teacher of the deaf. So I would teach in my classroom. Oh, it's time for an, a school assembly about, you know, dare drug abuse. And I would go with my students to the assembly and I'd interpret the assembly. 
So that's always kind of was part and parcel of what I did and I enjoyed it, but it became a necessity more so in 2008. I ended up leaving where I was for a period of time to move elsewhere. I thought I was going to stay in this elsewhere place for about six months and take care of a situation. I said, well, I can't just, you know, stay here for six months and get a classroom for a semester and know I'm going to leave. As a teacher, that didn't make sense for me. I'm just going to live here for a minute. Why am I going to go through the whole process and get a classroom of students and become attached and know, oh, I'm going to move back to this other city sooner or later. I became aware of an interpreting need, and this was in the city of San Jose, and they were looking for interpreters at a community, at a city college. And I thought, well, that's something where, you know, I don't have to go through this really stringent process to have my degree um, and credentials approved by the state. And there's a long process when you go from one state to another state with your teaching certification, you have to have reciprocity, blah, blah, blah. I'll just go and interpret because I do have some interpreting skills and this is something that can be short term, no problem. So I was hired sight unseen, which goes to show how much of a dearth there is in terms of interpreters. There is such a need for interpreters. I was hired over the phone to start immediately with a city college in the Bay Area to become an interpreter. And they had no clue of my skills. They had received my resume and were just like, hey, we need somebody today. Can you go to this place and start working today? I said, sure. So that began my interpreting career. And what I thought was going to be a six-month foray into the field of full-time interpreting became (laughs) now 12 years of full-time interpreting. And if we fast forward to present day, In March of 2020, you were featured in your local news channel as an interpreter for the hard of hearing community, relaying information about COVID. Talk to us a little bit about that moment. As an ASL interpreter, typically you are someone who's freelance. We call it community interpreting. You sign up with an agency or agencies and you get notified of work that they have and you accept it or you don't. I was notified by a particular agency that there was an assignment coming up related to the coronavirus pandemic. And at that time, um, this was like mid, early to mid-March, there was still some uncertainty about the intensity and, and the depth of what was going on with coronavirus. It was still an unknown. And so they, the agency brought it to me, hey, we have this job for next week every day. It's the Department of Public Health related to coronavirus at this time. Can you do it? I said, sure. Um, all, of, all of my college classes were on spring break, the, the college courses that I interpret for regularly. They were on spring break that following week. So I was looking for something to fill in that time anyway. So I accepted the uh, assignment. Uh, for a couple of days that week. And during the course of that week, it went from, yeah, there's like this coronavirus thing happening and we're not sure how bad it's going to be. It went from that to being, okay, guys, this coronavirus is looking kind of bad. And and so I became sort of the go-to interpreter for that assignment. And I'm still doing that assignment currently. 
What difficulties did you come across when you're suddenly called to interpret for the Department of Public Health? And what helped you overcome these? What difficulties did I come across? Um, My first day working with the Department of Public Health for the coronavirus briefing, I was the only interpreter scheduled, which I was unaware of going into the assignment. Ouch. Um, Which is problematic because, A, this is heavy life or death information that was being dispensed. This was um, on-camera work. This was over an hour worth of ASL interpreting with I believe that day, first day, there were seven or eight different speakers. And I arrived early and asked the point of contact, oh, okay, so is there a team? Where are they going to be? And I was told, oh, sorry, we didn't schedule a team. And which was a surprise for me because the previous day, I watched the press conference on TV just to kind of get an idea of what it would be when the next day I went in for the assignment. And that previous day there were two interpreters. So I presumed, okay, they scheduled two interpreters for every day. So first day, two interpreters, the second day, it was just me. And it was quite heavy. It was quite overwhelming. I did the best that I could because I feel I've developed a pretty great stamina for interpreting mental stamina is required, not physical, mental stamina. Um, And I knew just the importance of it. And I felt, I guess, some sort of adrenaline rush that helped, (laughs) helped augment the stamina that I already had. So I was able to get through the assignment. And then after the assignment was over and the cameras went off, I crashed. I, I, I was brain dead. But in terms of how do I prepare daily for something like this, which includes, you know, new medical terminology, new layman terminology, things that we've never talked about before, social distancing and quarantining and just words that are part of regular English, but that we don't use normally. I am not an expert on ASL in any form or fashion. I don't claim to know anything and everything and far be it from me or any other interpreter. We're not the ones who come up with signs. We are not the ASL innovators as hearing interpreters. The ASL innovators belong, that belongs to the people whose native language is ASL, AKA the deaf community. So in terms of preparation prior to going into this assignment that I have, I look at the deaf community, what signs are they using? What concepts are they they using? And there are two uh, sources in particular that I heavily rely on, and they are two um, deaf-run, deaf-operated, deaf-anchored news sources. Uh, The first one is called Sign One News, and the other one is called Daily Moth. And those are available on Facebook and YouTube, et cetera. And they have the daily news broadcasts. And these are native users of ASL who come on and they'll tell you the news of the day, just like you can watch on CNN or ABC or whatever. So I go to the, that's the news source that I watch. I watch the regular news on my regular television set, but I also tune in to the the daily moth and I tune in to sign one news so I can see how a deaf person is expressing a concept 
What sign are they using for serology testing? How do they uh, explain the concept of social distancing? So I don't have to recreate the wheel. I don't have to figure it out. Oh my gosh, how would I explain that concept? I might have an idea of how I would express it. I look at what's being expressed by the deaf community and I take that in. That's what I use. Everything isn't necessarily, you know, maybe it's expressed differently from one news broadcast to the other. I'm not saying that they're using the exact same sign for these vocabulary words, but I'm able to see what's being signed and incorporated into what I produce when I do the the daily pressers. What do people often get wrong about ASL or ASL interpreting? People, unfortunately, tend to focus on, I guess that's the difference perhaps between spoken language interpreting and, and signed language interpreting. Unfortunately, in signed language interpreting, specifically ASL, people tend to focus on the interpreter. People will reach out to me. Oh my gosh, you're so great. These are hearing people now who don't know ASL, who have no clue about the deaf community at large. And they'll reach out with good intentions, of course, you know. Um, but as an ASL interpreter and as someone who is, my my role is to be an ally to the deaf community. And my role is to practice allyship and advocacy and to turn the focus from me as the interpreter, because I'm just doing my job but with their language, I'm to turn that focus that's on me and redirect it towards the community. So people kind of, you know, oh my God, you're a rock star, you're a superstar. No, I'm an ASL interpreter and I need to be invisible. I'm not the focus. The deaf community is the focus. People also think that ASL is word for word English, which is not true, as I already said. ASL has its own syntax and semantics. The linguistics, I went to, um, I started graduate school and in the field of ASL linguistics, it goes really deep. ASL is not just English on your hands. Um, there's a lot of facial expressions and body language that goes along with ASL. There's something called non-manual markers, which are mostly, you know, on your mouth, using your mouth or your lips to indicate intensity, um, to show frequency or different inflections. And so people see you doing things with your tongue or your mouth and they think, oh, you're being extra or what has she got to do all that for? It's distracting. Well, it's for a reason. It's not just me, you know, trying to get attention. It's not just an interpreter making something up so people can watch and be entertained. It's part of the language. It's part of making sure that there's the clarity um, that needs to be there to make sure the message is complete and accurate. Um, ASL is not universal. It's American sign language, which is mostly used in America, Canada, some islands, some of the Caribbean islands use parts of ASL, but every country has its own sign language. British sign language is completely different from American sign language. It's not mutually intelligible. Um, what else do people get wrong? Are non-manual markers universal or do they vary from culture to culture? I, it's, that's a good question. I have watched some British sign language, um, Russian sign language, French sign language. And I've noticed that there seems to be at least some similarity in non-manual markers. And I don't know in the production, I should say, and what they look like. I don't know if they mean the same thing because I don't know those other signed languages, 
but I noticed that there, the existence of manual markers in sign languages around the world seems to be pretty, it's pretty consistently there, but I'm not sure of if they're for the exact same purpose. Do you have or have you had a career or professional mentor that has helped you along the way in your ASL interpreting journey? Aside from your youth tutors, the mom and daughter, is there a person or a community of people that you tend to lean on for support? I don't think I've ever officially had a mentor-mentee relationship with someone in my career as as someone who's a mentee. I have always unofficially <laughs> had mentors. Um, even during college, when I was studying to be a teacher of the deaf, we had interpreters in our classrooms for some of the deaf students. And I would, I always watch interpreters. I've always um, kept mental notes on, wow, I really like when they did that. Or, okay, well, they signed it this way. How would I sign something? Would I use what they did? Or would I, would I switch it up and maybe add something else for clarity? I have a ton of hearing ASL mentors that I've looked up to. Um, I also have quite a few deaf and hard of hearing mentors, just, you know, regular lay people, professionals. Um, As a teacher of the deaf, I had a deaf paraprofessional in my classroom named Leah. Leah um, is deaf and she is amazing. I have told her for the past eight years or so, you need to become a deaf interpreter. You are amazing your skills would be so well used to the deaf community at large. Um, She's someone who I still to this very day, just the way in which she is able to explain things and break things down and be so clear with her ASL is just, I love it. It's amazing to me. She's someone who I look to as a deaf mentor. I have a ton of people. I, it, I, I don't feel it has to be one particular person because I feel you can learn something from anybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm just kind of always cognizant of things, cognizant of what deaf people are signing. And I learn so much from the deaf community, obviously, because it's their language and their creativity and innovation and play with the language is just, it's amazing. It's beyond anything that a hearing interpreter could ever do. So. I have a ton of unofficial deaf mentors out in the community. Some of these people who I've never even met, I only know them through Facebook or Instagram. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I have a ton of unofficial deaf mentors. They don't know that they're your mentors, but you're their mentee nonetheless. (laughs) They are in my mind, though. Rory, what would you say inspires you every day to do the work that you do? What inspires me? I've always wanted to be the, as I mentioned earlier, perfectionist, one of those overachieving type people. And I've always wanted to be the best and be not the best as in I'm the best interpreter ever, but to be excellent in that moment at my job. I can remember watching um, figure skater, Michelle Kwan. I loved her. She was just excellent, not only technically, but artistically. Someone like Simone Biles, the gymnast, she's just excellent. Not saying that she's perfect in every, you know, somersault or ever every uh, skill that she performs, but she's just overall excellent. 
someone like Beyonce, who's just excellent. They're just, she's just amazing. The work ethic and the skill and the artistry is just, it's mind blowing. So those are people who I've always looked up to as, wow, this person is really excellent. I want to be excellent at what I do. So in general, that's my inspiration. Um, more specifically, it's, it comes from the people whom I encounter daily, my former students who I'm still in touch with, who I talk to all the time. They inspire me. The deaf and hard of hearing people that I interpret for and that I'm friends with and that I speak with daily, they inspire me because I see there's such a need, there's such an ignorance that hearing people have regarding the deaf community. And so it makes you want to work doubly hard to combat that and to fill in the gaps that much more so because you hear, I see and hear the most ignorant things that come from the most quote unquote educated professional people. And it's like, how can you say that? How can you think that? So I feel like that's part of my role and I really take that seriously, but it does inspire me to be better and to continue and to never become complacent and think, you know, oh, I've maxed out and, you know, I'm, I'm at the top of my game. That's not ever something that I want to accept or to come from a place of. I want to strive to be better. And my inspiration is the deaf community, wherever it is that I'm living. Give us an example of a misconception the hearing community has. I know we touched on it briefly a bit ago, but share with us an example of something you've seen or heard from the hearing community that involves the deaf or hard of hearing community. Oh my gosh. (laughs) There's so many misconceptions that hearing people have. Um, I'll show up at a doctor's appointment and um, I'll be asked, oh, is the patient with you? And, you know, me trying to get clarification. Oh, are they with me? Yeah. Did you bring them? Don't you, don't you live with them and bring them with you? Don't, aren't you their, their personal interpreter? And you go, you know, you're going to go to the pharmacy with them after they're done at the doctor's appointment to help them pick up their prescription, right? No, deaf people function in the hearing world day in and day out. It's just that most people don't recognize them because deafness isn't something that is visible. If someone is is in a wheelchair or someone is using a cane or has a seeing dog or anything like that, that's something where you can visibly say, oh, okay, I see that. A person who's deaf or hard of hearing may or may not wear a hearing aid or a cochlear implant. And even if they do, you, you don't typically look for things like that. They look just like you and me. And there's millions of deaf and hard of hearing people out there every day. And they function in this world just fine except they don't have access to the information that they should have because we as hearing people continually oppress them and don't provide the services such as interpreters that need to be provided. Um, There's a misconception that deaf people are just skilled lip readers, that they can just sit and read your lips and understand exactly what's going on to be able to navigate a doctor's appointment or a job interview or a new hire orientation or any type of uh, communication. Lip reading is not reliable. Lip reading depends on so much. You might, if somebody has an accent or someone has facial hair or now people with masks, there's, there's no way any lip reading is going to be able to go on. So there's that misconception that, oh, you know, if I just speak loud enough, they can read my lips and they can understand and access communication, which is also a one-way street. Because even if a deaf person can read your lips perfectly, let's say, let's say in some 
you know, utopia, deaf people can read your lips perfectly. That's great, but communication is two-way. So if they can read your lips, what about the fact that they might have something to say in response to that? What about that? So um, I think that's just, you know, hearing misconceptions and ignorance and, and not wanting to really fully understand what the deaf culture entails. Deaf people, mm. there are deaf people who are <laughs> way smarter than me. There are deaf people who have their PhDs and they work for NASA. They work for the FBI. They work for all types of government sources. They work for all kinds of colleges and universities. In healthcare, there's deaf attorneys. There's deaf people who are engineers. There are deaf scientists in all roles of society. And people just tend to think of, oh, the poor deaf person or, you know, oh, they're deaf and, ugh, deaf and dumb. No. Hearing impaired. No. Deaf mute. No. And I hear doctors say this all the time when I go for doctor's appointments to interpret. Oh, the deaf mute. No, no. That how is it right for you to think that that's okay to say in this day and age? You're you're intelligent, a, a professional doctor, and you're you're calling this person hearing impaired. No, that's not that's not right. So, and those are types of things that as interpreters we we have to gently and professionally counteract by saying, "Oh, doctor, you mean the deaf patient?" Blah 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 blah. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, did you say hearing impaired, doctor? Okay, just FYI, you know, you have to be very gentle and have the soft skills to handle those types of moments as an interpreter. You're, you know, not just interpret always. Or to, if the, if the deaf patient, deaf person is there to say, oh, doctor said deaf mute and interpret it directly and empower the deaf person to then speak up and say, oh, no, don't call me hearing impaired. Don't call me deaf and dumb. Etc. Rory, these days we seem to be encountering an onslaught of social unrest from the absurd, like where'd all the toilet paper go, to more serious issues like a worldwide health pandemic and serious racial issues. And while some of these are new issues, others have been around for centuries. Share with us what life is like for a minority woman ASL interpreter. Wow, that's a whole... um, ASL interpreting traditionally has been a white female career. And in my experience, racism is not something that is compartmentalized. It's not just when I get home from work and I'm out grocery shopping, I, you know, the racism or the the inherent discrimination or bias I feel towards Black people bubbles up then. It's something, you know, it's not compartmentalized racism. So it, it bleeds into every area of your life. So I have encountered situations um, from both deaf and hearing people where I've been told, I've been called racial slurs, where I've been told, oh, well, I don't really like Black people. I don't really like Black interpreters or working with a team and and you come in and you're automatically underestimated because of the fact that you're black. It happens often, or, you know, it happens where you're out in a room full of interpreters and you're the only one who isn't white. And so you end up therefore representing every black interpreter by virtue of the fact that you're the only black one in the room. 
And so there's a weight, there's a heaviness that comes with that. And as we talk about uh, the civil unrest and everything that's happened as a result of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, George Floyd, and all the other unjust murders perpetuated by police officers in America, as a Black interpreter, you have to be, you have to endure that. You have to go through it with the rest of Black America. At the same time as I have to go and interpret Dr. Barbara Ferrer from LA Department of Public Health speaking on it. And you can't separate yourself. It's not like it's happening to some other people and I'm not involved in that. And so I can be very um, objective about it. I can be very neutral about it. There is no neutral because it's, it's my life. But in that, I also have to always consider the deaf community because being deaf, as I said earlier, isn't something that's visible. You can't, you know, walk next to someone or sit across from someone and say, oh, that person must be, you know, they're deaf unless they're using ASL or there's some reason that you are able to tell that they're deaf. If they're just sitting there, they're they're just a person. But a black deaf person, as you see them, that's a person who's black. And on top of that, they have the intersectionality of being deaf. So it's not just only, you know, you're black and you might be pulled over by an officer, but now you can't even, in some cases, hear and understand what the officer is saying to you. You lift up your hands to sign, to indicate that you're deaf because this is your language and you are ripped out of your car and you're shot. It it happens all the time. There was a case where a whole neighborhood came out as an officer was chasing after a young black deaf male. The community, the, the neighborhood came out and said to this officer, oh, he's deaf. He can't hear you as you're yelling at him to stop or whatever it was. He can't hear you, officer. He's deaf. He's deaf. He can't hear you. And the officer was, you know, like, hey, this, this black man is not complying with orders. Shot and killed him. So being deaf is one thing, but being black deaf is a whole nother story. Black deaf young men, I've interpreted phone calls and and conversations where parents have to tell their black deaf male child, hey, you know, you be careful because not only are you black, which already puts the target on you, but you're black and deaf, which makes you even more vulnerable to having something happen. Because if you're black and deaf and you get pulled over, what are the chances that they're going to get an interpreter to interpret this conversation? Slim and numb. What are the, what are the chances that once you get booked into lockup, they're, they're going to call an interpreter? It depends on what area you live in. It depends on the time of day. It depends on the officer. There, it, it's not an automatic that you're going to get an ASL interpreter who's able to vibe with you and use your style of language and can understand your culture and your background to be able to provide a culturally competent interpretation of what's going on, a qualified interpreter who is competent enough to take legalese or whatever's coming out of a police officer's mouth and turn it into something that is understandable so you can, as a deaf person, respond. What are the you know chances that once you go to court, you're going to have a qualified interpreter show up to interpret? It's, it's, there's so much more involved with that intersectionality of Black and deafness. So it's even more unjust. It's even worse. The, there are people sitting in jail and prisons now, deaf people, who've never had an interpreter at all in the entire process along the way, at all, period. How is that, how is that allowed? 
So now you're just going to strip the rights of this person and not provide them interpretation, not provide access to what's going on about their life. And they're sitting in prisons now for years and don't know half the time what they're in, in prison for. Don't understand how it got to this point because I'm innocent. I wasn't doing anything, but here I am sitting in prison years later. So as a Black interpreter, I keep all this in mind because the Black deaf community is part of the Black community and they live in fear even more so. They have that in the back of their minds even more so regarding their safety and their interactions with the police because they know the outcome will be as bad, if not worse, for them because of the fact that they're deaf. I just want to point out something that struck me as you said it, which was first they see color. First they see black. So first they see color and then maybe, hopefully, they'll identify that this person is deaf or hard of hearing. But in reality, it's a whole new level of complexity, right? The truth is, whether or not you choose to believe it, is that we do live in a world that sees color first. Rory, I want to thank you for being willing to share such a personal experience with us. I'm grateful that I have this platform through which I can highlight the language professionals. Yes, absolutely. I am grateful for that. But I'm also grateful that we can highlight all other aspects that are part of our roles, injustices included. As a nation, we've got much to learn about one another. So thank you for sharing that story and um, thanks for sharing it here. Rory, in thinking back in your own experiences, what would be your number one recommendation for someone that's interested in getting into the ASL interpreting field? My number one recommendation to anyone who wants to be who wants to become an ASL interpreter is to establish real genuine connections with people in the deaf community. That's the best way to learn is to learn from the the community that uses ASL as their native language and not to often deaf people comment that hearing people come into the community, come into, you know, wanting to learn sign language and they reap the benefit of it. They learn ASL. And then once they've learned, they go off and and start working as interpreters and they never give back to the community. They never continue those friendships. They weren't genuine. It was just to exploit the deaf community to, to learn a language and then to profit off of it as an interpreter. So establishing and maintaining those real connections with people in the deaf community and in this time of social distancing, et cetera, that might be more difficult. Or perhaps you live in an area where you don't know anyone deaf and maybe it's a more rural environment where there aren't many deaf people around. Fortunately, with social media and technology, that isn't as problematic as perhaps it used to be. You are able to go particularly on Facebook, which seems most of the deaf community really uses Facebook as the social media platform of choice, but YouTube and Instagram and really follow and learn and listen to the deaf community and to learn from them and to be able to develop your skills and eventually give back to the community. And um, that would be the number one 
my number one recommendation for anyone wanting to enter the field and to also work on your L1, work on your first language, build your English vocabulary. Um, If you're trilingual, if you're someone who uh, speaks Spanish or Armenian or whatever other language you might already have, build on that skill because we need trilingual interpreters who know English, ASL, and another language. That's such a gift and such a blessing when I'm able to say, oh yeah, I do know someone who knows ASL and Armenian or ASL and Mandarin, and I'm able to reach out and connect someone in the deaf community with that type of interpreter. So that would be my second is to build your your L1, your L2, whatever other languages that you have, strengthen your vocabulary and your knowledge. Um, and thirdly, I would say to volunteer and to support the deaf ecosystem, support deaf businesses, support deaf entertainers, deaf actors, support and volunteer and work in the community to be of benefit to them. Well said. Great advice, Rory. And I know that earlier you briefly touched on a recent increase on the highlighting of the sign language interpreter, when in truth the highlight should be on the deaf and hard of hearing communities. And absolutely, I agree with you 100%. Yet I'm also inclined to feel that if by highlighting the interpreter, the byproduct of that is the recognition that services need to be rendered to this often forgotten community, then to that I say, well, why not highlight the interpreter? If by highlighting the interpreter, you make me aware of the real needs or the ways that I can support the deaf and hard of hearing communities, then I I can't help but feel like it's a positive thing. Of course, I know that you're always going to have those that want to take advantage of the situation, right? But hopefully there's more Rory's than there are those seeking a selfish gain. You've got to start somewhere. Right, exactly. You have to start somewhere. Rory, thank you again for coming onto this platform and dropping some much-needed knowledge about ASL interpreting and the deaf and hard-of-hearing communities, and also just for sharing your story with us. Lastly, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? My Instagram handle is um, Black Terp Life. So black and then terp, T-E-R-P, life. Um, I try to, I post a lot in my stories, especially lately concerning um, things that are happening with the civil unrest in America. But I also post um, just different aspects of ASL interpreter life, specifically as it relates to me being a black interpreter. You don't necessarily see many of us out there. So um, that's my Instagram, and I'm also on Facebook. So that's where people can find me. Well, thank you so very much, Rory. I certainly do appreciate your time, your stories, your experience, and the work that you provide to the deaf and hard of hearing community. Thank you for coming on the show and being willing to shed a little bit of light on your work and those you service. Thanks so much, Rory. Thank you, Mireya. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot today, and I hope you did too. Please look for Rory on social media, Instagram specifically, where she's always sharing different ways that we can get involved with current social issues. Well, that wraps up today's episode, guys. But before I say goodbye, I want to give a quick shout out to Yadira Yadira, who sent an amazing review on Apple Podcasts. You're amazing, Yadira, and thanks for that. Also, a huge shout out to Claudia from Houston, Texas. 
who just the other day shared that she passed the exam to become an interpreter for immigration court, a journey she says started back in the late 90s. Way to go, Claudia. You got this, girl. Thank you guys so much for joining me once again. I hope to see you here next time. Till then, take care. And remember, tell your story. Brand the interpreter. Bye-bye.